Hello and welcome to the Behind the Artist podcast with Park West Gallery. I'm Gallery Director Morris Shapiro. If you'd like to view works of the artists I'm interviewing and learn more about them, please visit our podcast site with links to more content at parkwestgallery.com forward slash podcast. International art dealer Park West Gallery is proud to present our new podcast series, Behind the Artist. Each episode will be talking to popular contemporary artists to learn the stories and inspiration behind their extraordinary artwork and fascinating careers. When discussing the art of Scott Jacobs, one singular word always comes to mind, astonishing. When you consider that Scott takes a white Belgian linen canvas, a paintbrush, typically the size of a pencil point or smaller, and some pigments and creates paintings that are so shockingly realistic that many viewers refuse to believe they're not photographs. Well then, astonishing is pretty much the only superlative you can come up with. Scott's unparalleled success as an artist over the last 40 years remains in rarefied air. As the first artist ever licensed by Harley Davidson, and the licensee still holding the highest sales record for any product licensed by the company, along with his licenses for the Marilyn Monroe and Elvis Presley estates, his appearance with his daughter Alexa on the ABC television show Secret Millionaire, along with too many other accolades to mention here, Scott remains a humble, appreciative, and completely approachable person. In this segment, he discusses candidly his near-fatal motorcycle accident in 2016, his extraordinarily difficult recovery, and his current views about his life, his art, his aspirations, and about how he came to become one of the most successful fine artists of our time. This is Behind the Artist. It's no frills, just real and deep conversation. I'm Maura Shapiro, and I hope you enjoy this journey into the life and art of Scott Jacobs. So let's talk a little bit about your technique. I think our listeners will be very interested in some of the inside baseball about you know the Scott Jacobs uh, painting world. The whole idea of the Renaissance artist, which was to try and view the flat piece of canvas as a window through which you could look and see reality as close as possible. If you could replicate nature as close as possible, you were conveying the greatest message because the creator's art was nature. And if the artist in the, um, you know, in, in the, uh, the creator's creation could replicate that, that was the greatest message that you could convey because you were paying homage to the creator. To be a contemporary artist, picking up that same mantle of the great Renaissance painters and continuing that narrative in today's world where everything is so disposable and instantaneous and, you know, uh, people don't take the time to master the technique first of all, and then make the kind of commitment you've made to make these astonishing paintings, hundreds of hours to make a single painting in some cases. So take us through the process of creating one of your paintings. It varies, of course, whether it's a, you know, a, um, a painting that's a still life or a wine, wine still life or a motorcycle or things like that. As far as the motorcycles, a lot of the ideas come from life. Uh, some of them are things that just come up in my head where I'll, I'll do a thumbnail sketch on paper just to remind me of the idea because sometimes I go to bed and I've got an idea and if I don't write it down, I mean, I have a pad that's always next to my bed and I, I draw these things out and then I try to recreate the idea 
in photo reference. Mm-hmm. You know, I photograph it, so I try to try to stage that in my head first, and then stage it in real life with a as camera. A fo- as a photograph, yeah. Yeah, because mm-hmm. as a photorealist, um, I believe that your your reference is very key to the final product that you have because it's kind of hard to to draw a motorcycle from your memory because you're going to forget a part. You're going to forget the oil pump or something like that or a screw or something, then Harley-Davidson's not going to prove it. Like, well, where's that part over there? You've know, <laughs> you got to go back and do it again. <laughs> so um, a lot of the ideas come from real life, uh, come from ideas in my head. Um, I remember uh, about 10 years ago, Olivia had just had a uh, cleaner bike. She had it uh, detailed. And it was sitting. we're sitting in our condo in Spearfish, and... It starts pouring rain outside, and her bike's sitting out front. So she grabs an umbrella, and she runs out there, and she holds the umbrella over her bike. She goes, no, I just had this freaking detail. <laughs> and so I did a painting called Gimme Shelter, which is a woman swatted down next to her bike holding an umbrella over it. <laughs> and I got that idea because Olivia just you know, did her bike there. So a lot of that comes. So after I get my photo reference, I, I figure out, so if I have an 8x10, I figure out, I take the length and the width and I multiply it times an equal number. So that way I can stretch a canvas that is to the same you know, proportion, proportion yeah, of format. it. Yeah. Draw it out in pencil. Um, uh, I did the grid system for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Taking a little piece of uh, clear acetate with squares on it, lay over it, and then put bigger squares on the, uh, on the canvas. I did that for years. And the reason I did it like that is because I could do demonstrations on the road. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes I'll use a projector and I'll project something uh, on there to get the proportions. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the uh, the wide pieces and smaller pieces, I just draw it all freehand because mm-hmm. that kind of stuff is real easy for me to do. You use a soft pencil or hard pencil? I use a hard pencil mm-hmm. um, to draw it because... Um, when you mix paint with the softer pencils, it actually dirties the paint. Yeah, you know, especially muddy. white, yeah. it makes it. You know, it'll yeah. turn it. It'll turn the yeah. white gray because uh-huh. that pigment's mixing in with it. So I draw lines, and when I when I draw a piece out, like if it's a motorcycle, it's just the parts. So all I need to draw is the outline of the motorcycle tank, the outline of the tire, you know, the the, the forks, the different parts, and things like that all the details done with the brush mm-hmm. you know so my my drawings are not super intricate they're mm-hmm. just just the shapes of things You're blocking yeah just yeah. yeah and then the the next thing i do is uh, once i've got it all drawn into uh, in perspective i start with the background uh, i always work from the background forward that way i could not be sloppy but don't have to be as accurate painting the background meaning if i have um, say i have a motorcycle in front of just a a sky I can paint the sky, and the sky could come over the area where the motorcycle is going to be somewhat, around the edges and so on, because I'm going to paint the bike in front of it anyway. So exactly. as I move forward, I clean mm-hmm. up those edges. Right. So it's um, I work with a lot of the darker colors first, like on the bike. So I, I put in the blacks and the dark colors around on the motorcycle, like in between the fins on the engine and things like that. That way, it gives me the shapes that I need to actually, you know, do the rest of the motorcycle itself. Mm-hmm. Um, on the um, when I do the, say the wine pieces, I have tables lined up. I've got all kinds of bottles of wine. I've got a huge selection of uh, corks, corkscrews, all different kinds of glasses that I've collected over the years, um, vases, flowers. A whole section of a uh, whole lineup of different tablecloths and things like that, 
and then I'll look through what I've done in the past and I'll try to come up with a new kind of composition and new kind of you know design. So I'll go over, I'll take a tablecloth, I'll lay it out, I'll pick a vase, I'll put some flowers in it. Not always, I don't always use a vase in it. Sometimes I'll just use flowers loose by themselves. And then I, I just try to compose something that's, you know, that I think has got great composition. I've learned a lot about composition over the years. Uh, I learned that when I'm doing like a bottle of wine in a glass, I need to overlap them a little bit. I need to have just that edge broken, that line, so it's not a glass over to the right and a bottle over to the left and a flower down the middle. You know, I need to kind of work things together, make it look right. So um, some of them I use a real dramatic angle. Uh, I like photographing the uh, the wine pieces outside with natural light because it makes it super dramatic. I love the the way the light filters through a bottle and filters yeah, through a glass, liquid. and you yeah. get that refraction mm -hmm. on the yeah. tablecloth and stuff. And that's that's the things that I think really make the paintings mm -hmm. dramatic. You know, you got to try things mm -hmm. as an artist, just like a musician's got to right. try things. You never you never know what your big hit's going to be. So you're you're getting finer and finer brushes as you go. Right, you're dealing with yep. large brushes at first. And do you do a lot of smoothing of the background, or is that something that's done pretty much near the end of the painting? Uh, you, you know, the uh, what's the word? The, the blending, I the guess. Blending, the blending? Yeah. That's It just depends on the piece yeah. itself. Yeah. You know, the largest brush I'll use is maybe a two, mm -hmm. which is Pretty tiny. Small. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's maybe, it's less than a quarter of an inch wide. Yeah, I mean, and what's, small what's the smallest brush? The smallest uh, 18, brush 18 zero. 18 zero. Yeah. Which is, yeah. is tiny. If I mean, it's smaller than a sharpened pencil point. Uh -huh. uh, it's probably geez, a quarter of the size of a sharpened pencil point. <laughs> but I can get such great detail, you know. And, and even though it's a tiny brush, if you dip it in the paint and then you dip it in again, you get like a second coating around mm -hmm. it. So actually you can get quite a bit of paint on it. So mm -hmm. when I'm, I'm doing detail, like in an eye and doing eyelashes or, you know, somebody's got a, a mustache or something like that, I can do a lot of detail with that small, small brush. Mm -hmm. You know, it's easy for me to control. You also paint on paper. And I love I love the paper. Yeah, yeah. and that's a whole different set of challenges because yeah. on the linen, the paint will sit on top of the linen and the paper just gets sucked in, yeah. right? And so what's nice about the linen, too, is that if I put a stroke or something, I do a blend I'm not happy with, and if I'm if I do it fast, I can take a Q-tip, I you know lick it, and I can wipe off the paint, and I can do it again. Where, on the uh, the paper, I use 400 pound paper. It's um, it's unforgiving, as you know, because I know you do drawing and everything as well. That um, once you put the pigment down, you can't get it out of there. Mm -hmm. I can go over it with acrylic mm -hmm. if I wanted to, but I can't I can't go over it with watercolor because the the only thing that the paper holds is the original pigment you put on it. Mm -hmm. So you can you can try to do it, or maybe you could go to gouache, which has a little chalk added to it, and you could go over it and make it work that way. But mm -hmm. um, it's very unforgiving the watercolors. But I love it though because I can blend out a piece fast. I could do a, flo a floral piece and with a big leaf or something like that, and I can take a, like a number two brush and I can wet it. And then I could come in there with three or I have three or four colors ready to go, and I just go in there and the stuff you can see the stuff moving into mm -hmm. it. You know, it kind of moves into that. You don't know what you're going to get. Right, it's, you know, right. that's why some of the uh, watercolor sunsets and things are so dramatic that artists have done because they wet the paper, mm -hmm. and you don't know how far that pigment's going to bleed into the next one. You get have you ever seen uh, John Singer Sargent's watercolors? Yes. They're, yeah, they're just, oh my yeah. god, they're incredible! You yeah. Just you go, how can that guy do that with a brush? And so my favorite are the portraits. All the portraits yeah. are just amazing. Yeah. yeah. So that that's a that's a good insight, I think, for people. You do some masking too, don't you? I do. Yeah. Areas? Yeah. Uh -huh. What what I do is um, like an, an acrylic painting. Um, 
if I'm say I'm working on the background and I have a lot of intricate say I did a lot of extra drawing on something I'll take a piece of masking tape of uh, what would you call it pinstriping tape and I'll, I'll pinstripe the edge of what I don't want the paint to come on mm -hmm. and I will um, keep it clean that way that way after I blend up to the tape I can peel it off and I got a nice clean edge clean edge yeah, yeah uh -huh. so um, I do that sometimes and you can do that on watercolor paper too oh that's yeah, nice it yeah. works really nice that's a great technique well I want to move on to a topic that I know it's hard for you to talk about but I think it's important for our listeners to uh, be aware of and that is your near-fatal accident and um, it happened not long ago you went through a horrific recovery period it was life-changing for you as it would be for anyone um, even more so in your case because it was uh, very threatening to your livelihood and your uh, everything you've worked so hard to achieve um, so if you can take us through that process that experience I know it was related to the cannonball run you yeah. know which is the motorcycle race which is really a cool thing well the cannonball race is a is a historic motorcycle race that started in 1915 by cannonball Baker cannonball Baker was uh, one of the first people to ride a motorcycle across the country he rode it from Kitty Hawk North Carolina to Santa Monica and so Back in uh, 2010, uh, the race hadn't happened in years and years. In 2010, this guy from South Dakota, uh, Lonnie Isom, came up with the idea to bring the race back. And so that particular year, uh, a friend of ours, Pat Simmons you know, from the Doobie Brothers, his wife, Chris, who was a close friend, she was going to do the race. And she said, you know, you have any time you could take off, maybe you could come and photograph me on the race because I'm doing a book about my experience. So I went and I photographed, I was in a sidecar on another bike and I photographed her throughout the race, which was pretty fun. And then I was like, God, I gotta do this. You know, but the problem was I didn't have any antique bikes because the bikes on this race are 100 years old. And they have to be at least 100 years old, right? Uh, it depends on the year. Okay. Uh, the first year you had to have a pre-1916 motorcycle. <laughs> so you're on a 100-year-old motorcycle. <laughs> 2000, they do it every two years. 2012 was the first time I did it. And so you had to have a pre 1928 motorcycle at the time and so I went out and bought a 1926 Harley-Davidson J model that needed to be fully restored and I did the 2012 Cannonball on it and did really well had a perfect score going all the way up to the, the next to last day and then a float in my carburetor cracked so I missed a day and I ended up in I was in third place at the time I ended up in 29th because mm -hmm. of that carburetor problem 2014 I did it again I did it on my um, 2000 or my 1926 again. Had a perfect score. Finished in third place overall out of, out of 115 around the world. So that was that was as good as I could do. That I couldn't have done any better than I did. The first and second place people were only on bikes that were older than mine. Mm -hmm. So they all they had perfect scores too. I was in third because mine was the third youngest youngest bike. Yeah. Fast forward to 2016. They. Um, they decided to go back to 100-year-old bikes. So you had to have a pre-1915, 1916 motorcycle. So they wanted, because it was the 100th anniversary of the race itself. So I went out and I searched around and bought two 1915 Harley-Davidsons. And it's a month-long race. It's a 17-day race, plus qualifying and trips across the country. And all whole that. country, the whole yeah. United States, yeah. Yeah, so we were in San Diego, so we had our our Mercedes Sprinter van with our big trailer with all the bikes in it. We, we um, 
became a team with Pat Simmons and Chris Simmons, and we were called the Honeymooners. So it started in 2016 in Atlantic City, New Jersey, on the boardwalk. And it was like a hundred and something degrees. It was unbelievable. It was unbearable to start of the race. And uh, did okay on the first day. About halfway through, my bike started acting horrible. It kept dying every like 10 minutes. Mm. It would just die on the side of the road. And then I'd have to run, run with it, jump on it, try to get it going again. It was just, uh, it was unbelievable. It was a horrible first day. So I gave it to my mechanic. He worked on it all night long. It started running okay the next day. About halfway through the day, um, I was riding with Sharon. Her bike broke down. Couldn't get it started. We tried and tried and tried. My bike was still running okay. So I left her on the side of the road with one of the officials from the race that was going to have a truck come and pick her up. And then I'm just about two miles ahead of Sharon. Come around a turn. I'm in uh, Cumberland, Maryland. I'm going through the woods. And I'm on a left-hand turn on a hill. I'm with uh, six other bikes. So I come around this turn and... At the top of the uh, hill in the woods on the turn, there's gravel. And not just a little gravel, you know, from a storm or anything. They were graveling the road because they were resurfacing it. And they had no signage. There was no flagman. There was no hint that it was on the road. And it was at the top of a hill, so you couldn't see it coming. <clears throat> so on an old bike, when you hit your brakes at all, because I tried it, I tapped my brakes to try to slow down. And what happens, you get what's called gravel lock. So you're your tire locks up so it's locked it won't rotate again until you're on an area that has no gravel or no ice or whatever as that you're sliding and so i'm holding the bike up i'm kind of squirrely on it on top of the gravel and i just stop there's a stop sign maybe i don't know 50 yards ahead of me or so and i see cars coming in both directions i was going to go through the intersection because beyond the intersection was no gravel and i would have been fine but the cars were coming and the way I was going there's no way I was going to stop so I had to lay the motorcycle down which means I dived to the ground Mm -hmm. and I try to have the friction of my body under the bike slow the motorcycle down before the intersection I can't even imagine I had the right clothes on though I had gloves on I had a helmet on I had Mm -hmm. Kevlar racing pants on that day thank God and uh, I had it I had all the right stuff on Mm -hmm. Uh, day before I did not I had Mm -hmm. a pair of jeans and a t-shirt on I would be so severely scarred yeah on the left side of my body had I done it the day before. So I'm sliding on the bike, and then all of a sudden there's a patch where there's no gravel in the midst of this whole gravel thing, and my tires hit the non-gravel area and stuck and flipped the bike. And so it catapulted me into the air, and I flew into the air and landed on my right shoulder upside down. Last second, I remember jerking my head to the side, and if I hadn't done that, I probably would have either been killed or broke my neck. Mm-hmm. Uh, slammed on the ground really hard and then flipped over and slammed on my hip and my lower back. And uh, slid like two or three feet short of that intersection where the cars were flying through. Mm-hmm. And my bike tumbled and stopped right short of the inter- intersection too as well. And so I'm laying there. It's this beautiful day. I'm looking up at the sky. I can't even breathe. I knocked the wind out of myself. I didn't know what happened. Truck pulls up next to me. And these two guys look over at me and go, you need any help? And I couldn't even talk at the time. And then they turned and they kept going. I'm laying in the intersection upside down. This beautiful 100-year-old motorcycle is almost in the intersection. The cars could hit it. And these guys actually stopped and asked if I need any help. They did turn around about uh, a minute later and come back. 
and I asked them to call 911 for me. Um, I didn't know the extent of my, um, my injuries at the time. Uh, I couldn't move my right side at all. I couldn't move my legs. Uh, when I hit the ground, apparently I, I hit so hard that I pinched uh, a nerve channel in my, in my uh, back. And so my feet were numb. I, I couldn't feel anything. Mm. And so um, these guys came out of their car. They called 911. They dragged me out of the middle of the oh, intersection. They, they moved you, huh? They probably shouldn't have yeah. uh -huh. at the time. But they, they did get me off the road, and they dragged me um, up onto an embankment off the, off the road. Um, I, I was able to reach into my inner pocket with my left arm, get my cell phone out. I called my wife. I called her, and I said, uh, I've had an accident. I need an ambulance. She's like freaks out on the phone, course, hangs up, course, yeah. hangs up on the phone, yeah. doesn't even ask me where I'm at. She has right. no idea where I'm at. Mm -hmm. And then like a minute later, I get a call back and it's her. She goes, where are you? You know, <laughs> I said, just stay on the, stay on the race, mm -hmm. you know, just go straight. You know, I'm, I'm on the same road that you were broken down on just a couple miles <coughs> off. And, um, she started running down the road. Mm -hmm. And then the, the guy, the official on the side is like, get on my bike, I'll mm -hmm. drive you there. Mm -hmm. So Sharon uh, jumped in the sidecar on that bike and she came up a few minutes later and just screaming. She was like hysterical because she didn't know the extent of you know, my injuries. I'm laying on the road. She sees that bike in the middle of, uh, of the intersection. She didn't know if I got hit or what happened. And what happened to my arm was when I hit when I hit my, um, when I landed on the ground, it obliterated my entire shoulder. It um, it fractured my humerus into so many pieces they couldn't put it back together. So they made the decision to cut it off about two inches above my elbow, and they took all the pieces out, which were distributed through different muscles in my in my arm. Um, I had severed my biceps three quarters of the way through. I I cut two out of the four uh, rotator cuff tendons all the way through. The other ones were nicked. One was halfway, one was three quarters of the way. They were still hanging on, they said. And um, I chipped the, I can't remember the name of it, but whatever your, the, the humerus ball goes into in the top of your shoulder, I broke a chunk off of that. And so um, I this stayed- This is your right shoulder. This is my your, right your shoulder. painting My hand. painting, my yeah. painting arm. Yeah. Did yeah. they helicopter you to a hospital? Uh, no, I waited. I waited on the side of the road for a long time. Um, they wanted to cut my jacket off so they could have a better look. And I had this really expensive jacket that Harley Davidson gave me. And Sharon, I remember on the side of the road, no, no, you're not cutting that jacket. She goes, that's an expensive Harley jacket. So instead, they take it off of me while I'm screaming, oh, screaming in pain, pain. Yeah. instead of cutting it off and making it easy. And I bet you give Sharon oh. grief about that to this day. <laughs> oh my God, it was it was crazy. And uh, so they got it off, and uh, they didn't know extent. They put me on the in the, the that hard board. They strapped me to that. They put that big collar on my neck and everything like that. And they uh, and then the Flintstones showed up. The name of the ambulance was the Flintstones. Mm. That was the name of the town where the ambulance came from. So like, I figure we're going to have to pedal our feet back to the hospital or something. <laughs> so the Flintstone mobile came and picked me up and um, drove. And it was about it was about 20 minutes to a half an hour to the uh, hospital. And I remember the ride was was horrific. And you were probably so frightened. Oh, my too. God. You had no every idea what's going to happen. Yeah. Every bump. I was freaking out in yeah. there. And I'm all, I'm like, I, I can get claustrophobic easily. And I'm strapped down. I can't move my arms, my legs. I can't feel. 
Um, I got this big collar on my neck. I don't know what's wrong with me. Right. They bring me to the hospital. I thought I was, uh, you know, I thought I might have broke my back and that I was going to be paralyzed. And they told me with the extent of the damage to my arm, I didn't know if I'd ever uh, pain again. Mm which is pretty crazy to think mm-hmm. that you could be paralyzed and never pain again, yeah. you know, and your life yeah. changes in that heartbeat. Yeah, and here, here I'm doing something that I love, motorcycle racing, mm-hmm. You're, you know, motorcycle riding. Mm-hmm. Something you love could be so dangerous like that. Mm-hmm. So um, it changed. And what it changed for me is um, you start reevaluating your life and you think about what was the most important things, you know, because things, you know, when things go so easy in your life, you don't really think about what could happen until you have that near-death experience. And I've had a lot of friends get in motorcycle accidents way worse than I, than mine, but, um, you know, we all have our own, our own take on it. But I had a lot of paintings. Uh, the thing that's changed about my um, paintings is, one, I can't paint as big as I used to. I mean, I guess I could, but it'd be very painful and difficult for me because I would have to, I would have to work the painting upside down, sideways, in all these different directions to be able to paint something larger, mm-hmm. because the mobility of my arm is a lot. It's it's a lot it's more, more restricted. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's about sixty percent. How long did it take you before you could start painting again from the time of the accident? Almost a year. Almost a year. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't yeah. even write my name. Um, that looked that resembled my original signature mm-hmm. till almost six months. Wow! You know, so it was. Uh, I remember the rehab. You know, painful. Oh my God! Yeah. It was just unbelievable. I didn't think I'd ever be able to yeah. use my arm again the way I could now. The most painful thing was uh, laying on my back and putting my arm down my side and then kind of lifting it up mm-hmm. and trying to lift it up straight and then try to go back. That was crazy. And then uh, one of the exercises that. I just, I couldn't believe that I couldn't do it, was to take my arms, to bend my elbows, and put my two elbows on the wall, and then lift my wrists off the wall. Mm. No Mm. matter what, I couldn't do it. I could do it with my left, of course. Mm -hmm. I couldn't do it with my right for almost four months. Such a simple movement. Well, it's because I had so much nerve damage Mm -hmm. that my brain was not was not getting the signal to those receptors mm-hmm. to be able to do that mm-hmm. in my body. And so um, and kept trying, a, kept trying. You had a prosthetic uh, implant, right? Like a Yeah, that's what took titanium the Titanium or something? Yeah, I got yeah. a titanium rod that's um, just above my elbow, mm-hmm. all the way up with a big ball on it. Mm-hmm. And then they, you know, they, they put everything else back together. Wow. I get pain every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, it feels like it's burning all the time, but they say that's mostly the... The nerves, which will take years to grow back, mm-hmm. um, they said that's that's that that'll take the longest. Mm-hmm. But you know, for what happened to me, it's working pretty damn good. Yeah. Well, you know? well, I see the change in your painting, and we've talked about this before. You know, uh, I, I don't ever want to diminish your earlier work because it's spectacular. But it seemed like you were maybe more focused than on the. Uh, maybe for lack of a better word, the pyrotechnics, you know, saying, look at, yeah. look at my chops, look at what I can do, L- let me just amaze you with my technical virtuosity. Mm-hmm. And now I find your work to be much more contemplative, I think, and poetic. It's got, mm-hmm. a, it's got a different mood about it, uh, which I find really beautiful. And, uh, you know, I think you, you said something to me along the effect that you're painting what you want to paint now. 
Yeah, you so know, amplify that a little bit. Well, you know, as an as an artist, you know, or you know, I I compare artists to musicians a lot too because I think musicians, if they have a big hit, they tend to try to do other things along, maybe a different, slightly different spin on what's been successful for mm -hmm. them in the past, which I think a lot of artists do. Mm -hmm. You'll see a lot of artists do very similar paintings to each other because they've done, you know, they sold yeah. them in the past. Yeah. There's quite a few artists that'll do, you know, that quite often. With me, you know, it's, I think people have accepted me as an artist and want to collect something that is a, is a true creation of me, you know, meaning something that might be totally outside the box. Um, like I'm doing a, a series of birds right now. So I, I, I've got these, these ideas in my head, and what changed that day is I'm seeing those to fruition now. Uh -huh. You know, the ideas that maybe people will connect with, I need to see them. Because mm -hmm. you never know as an artist, um, you know, when you're going to pass. Nobody knows when they're going to pass. And I want to see these things done before I do. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't, I don't know what the last piece is going to be on my easel the day I die. But there's a lot of images that are in my head that I need to get out of there, mm -hmm. you know, so I can sleep at night. And I'm doing another one where it's a, it's a, um, it's a bird, it's a love bird. And it's sitting on a bunch of like kids' blocks, <laughs> and so you got and it says, so, you know, the blocks with the letters, the letters on the side, on, the old yeah. wooden blocks, and they're they're all like kind of piled up in like a, almost like a pyramid kind of thing, and birds sitting on one of them, and then he's um, it just says, art is the best is spelt out <laughs> in the different blocks, <laughs> and then I got another one where um, it's a it's a lovebird, and the lovebird is looking in a mirror. And the lovebird um, is seeing itself as an artist. So it's got a beret on. It's got a French beret on. It's got some paint splattered on itself. And then I got one where there's, um, it's a bird and it's in front of a mirror too. And there's an apple sitting in front of the uh, in front of the mirror next to the bird. But in the reflection, the apple's all eaten by the oh. bird. So I'm just, I don't know. I'm just trying these goofy things. I don't know if people will connect to them, but I think they're so whimsical and different that... Mm -hmm. I think people will be all over them. Oh, I'm sure they will. You know? Oh, I'm sure they will. Because you know, the thing which I, I say often at any of these shows is, you know, because a lot of your clients come to events over and over again. I might see them two or three times in a year, a lot of the same people. I want them to come and be surprised by what's in front of them. Mm -hmm. I don't want them to come and say, well, I already got one of those. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I want to surprise them. Mm -hmm. I need to keep myself excited as an artist, and I need to keep my collectors excited yeah. as collectors. Your audience. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, but I, I, I kind of I made an analogy a while ago where, you know, you could be a, a famous singer with a whole bunch of hits in the past, and you get on stage and you got a new album out there and you don't know if anybody's going to like your sure. new songs. Yeah. You know, they want to hear the ones they already yeah. know. Of course. They want to sing along with yeah. those, you know. Uh -huh. And so that's, I think as an artist, um, every time we debut new paintings, it's our new songs and we're not sure if the people are going to connect with them or sing mm -hmm. along with these new songs that we've created. And it's, uh, it's that's one of the toughest parts. You know, mm -hmm. even though I've been doing this a long, long time, 40, 40 years as a professional artist now, it's, uh, I still get nervous. Even though I, I know I paint well, I've, I've sold paintings for a quarter of a million dollars, which is mind-boggling to me. And that's a lot of pressure, actually, on an artist, mm -hmm. you know, to, uh, to sell a painting for that much because you want, you want to kind of, you want to know that it, the people that bought it made a great decision. Um, but when I think about what I've done in my career, 
I know that I'm the first artist ever licensed by Harley. First artist was Chevrolet. I you know, worked with uh, Marilyn Monroe, Elvis Presley, all these different things, all these accolades that I've had. This is all I'm going to do in my entire yeah, life. Yeah. I am going to try. You're, you're gone. Yeah. Like all I'm, great artists, you'll paint till your last day. Yep. Yeah. And I think I'm just beginning. I mean, I think the best stuff that I have in me is yet to come, mm -hmm. to be honest with you, yeah. because I've, I've matured as an artist. I've shown my chops to people. I don't have to do a meticulously detailed piece in every single inch of the painting anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, I still do because I love doing it, but I want to expand my horizons as an artist. I want to try new directions. I want to surprise people. I'm doing some more musical pieces where the people are really shadowed, they're really dark, so it's more about the instrument. instrument uh -huh. But you might see the hands on the guitar or something mm -hmm. like that are really shadowed. Or, you know, I'm, I'm doing a violin one, I'm doing a guitar, I'm doing a saxophone one mm -hmm. now for upcoming mm -hmm. shows that are almost finished. That would be nice for the reflections. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, the brass. I don't know. You know, I was inspired by, you know, a lot of artists like Charlie Bell, uh, John Bader, Ralph Goings. Uh, Maxwell Parrish, um, Norman Rockwell, mm -hmm. you know, people like Doug Webb, the artist from mm -hmm. California. And they tried so many different things, you know, you know, especially people like Charlie Bell. He would do a series of marbles, just these amazing photorealistic painting of marbles that are so intricate and amazing. And then he'd do a pinball machine, and then he just jumped all over the board and did all kinds of things. And I feel like to carry that tradition of a true photorealist because I think as a photorealist you can paint anything you can you really yeah. you really can well you certainly can you have the well choice. I try you know and it, I try to paint something that that truly challenges me mm -hmm. I want people to go wow mm -hmm. you know that I you know I got a little taste of that hanging around Doug Webb back in the 80s and people would come up and they would say wow they look at his paintings, and, and I was saying the same thing, and I wanted that reaction. I, mm -hmm. I longed for that reaction in my art, and I, I strived to get it over the years, and I've accomplished that, you know, because people that, that spend that kind of money on a painting, man, they got, you got to love something a lot, you know? That is a lot of pressure for an artist, it is a but lot of also pressure. something which propels you to higher and higher levels yeah. of quality. Yep and uh, imagination and achievement and virtuosity. You know, those are all characteristics that you possess in, in abundance. I've noticed too, when we've talked about this, that your work in some cases is getting looser. You're actually allowing the brush strokes to be more visible, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And certain paintings, more atmospheric in some cases, which I think is really cool too. You're moving back and forth between those two worlds now, with more of an atmospheric style and, a, and the highly detailed style. Well, I think we have to close it up, but uh, before we do that, let's just talk real quick about uh, moving to South Dakota, because you moved from uh, San, San Diego, Diego to South Dakota fairly mm -hmm. recently. Mm -hmm. you got a gallery now. Yeah. You just came from the Sturgis Rally, which is like the biggest motorcycle event in all of the world. It is. Right? Yeah. And it's like over a million people that come yeah. to it, right? It's crazy. So you got to prepare for that and uh, have this crazy thing, This these, these people descend upon the little town of Deadwood, Deadwood South Dakota, yeah, right? Deadwood, Sturgis. With all their bikes and stuff, yeah. and it's crazy. You've been doing that for a long time, right? I, my first Sturgis was uh, 1994, yeah. so it was yeah. my 24th year there, yeah. and it's... Um, We've had a relationship with the Black Hills of South Dakota for the 24 years um, because I would come up every year and have one or two, sometimes three booths during the motorcycle rally depending on the amount of people that were scheduled to come to it. And 
I don't know, we got a little burnout with California with the amount of people, the expense of everything. And I was just, I just got to the point where I just couldn't, uh, I couldn't do it anymore. We had this, um, the state sent us a letter one time telling us they were tripling the cost of our workman's compensation for our employees. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the last straw. Mm -hmm. And now I've got 11 people working for me full time out in Sandy, or in uh, South Dakota. And my workman's compensation there is one-eighth the cost. Mm -hmm. My employees, instead of, instead of living in small apartments, paying crazy amounts of money, they're, they're living in homes now. So we do get winter there and things like that. There's not as much to do throughout the winter, but I'll tell you, it was the right move for my company. Mm -hmm. Bought a historic building on Main Street in the most amazing location you could have in Deadwood. And we opened up, we have an 11,000 square foot building. Uh, we have a beautiful gallery. We've got a lot of my vintage bikes on display in there. Um, I've bought back a lot of my paintings over the years. And I've got a lot of the paintings that I've purchased back on display in there. So people could see their favorite pieces they've had or collected since um, you know they were young. And uh, got my clothing line. All the products that we have that are available are there and it's uh, it's an amazing, it's an amazing, um, I guess, shrine to myself. <laughs> it's also but a I, dream you know, come true, though. Well, really, yeah, you know, know, but yeah. I didn't, I didn't build it or put it there as a shrine to me. I built it because people that have collected my work for so many years, I think, would really hope to see something like that. Yeah. Because I see their eyes just, they're like yeah. a glow as they walk through the door, and you've got. You know, you walk in, Catch of the Day is right there on the left. Mm -hmm. Catch of the Day is the piece of art that has been published on more products for Harley-Davidson than any piece in, in their history. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's playing cards and puzzles and collector plates or coffee mugs, shirts, people walk in and it's the original's right, right there on the yeah. wall. Yeah. They're like, wow. Yeah. And, you know, I try to treat every customer you know, with the same respect, whether they come in and buy a, a deck of playing cards or they buy a $100,000 painting. Mm -hmm. Those people respect my time just like anybody would, mm -hmm. you know, because I, I think that's part of why certain artists are maybe more successful than others, because you take the time with the clients, you know, and you, you treat everybody equally. Give you never people, know who walks through that door. You, you really do. Treat you know? everybody the same. Yeah. They'll come back and... and uh and benefit you exactly well scott thanks for taking the time i know our listeners are going to absolutely love uh this conversation and the depth that you you uh you took to go into your past and your life and your work uh they're going to savor this but if you're not familiar with scott's work you can of course uh, take a look at it on our website that's uh, parkwestgallery.com so uh keep up the good work my friends stay healthy that's the most important thing and uh, keep making that amazing art because there's so many people all over the world that can't wait to see what's next. Yeah, such, such an honor to sit and talk to you too, by the way, buddy. My pleasure. Thank buddy. you. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Park West Gallery's Behind the Artist. To learn more about Park West Gallery's family of artists, visit us online at parkwestgallery.com or follow us on social media. You can subscribe to Behind the Artist on your favourite podcast app and be sure to rate and review the podcast on iTunes.